for you who are counting, keeping a record, that's one of my new favorite songs. I just want you to know. Somebody commented after once, once before I said that was one of my favorites. They said, you must have a mile-long favorites list. Well, that one has reached the top of my favorites list. I, I got to tell you, it's just, it's so intense worship. Focusing on the fact that Christ is our all. I mean, you know, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. You can't understand that unless you're in Christ. You can't understand that unless you understand what we're going to talk about this morning out of Hebrews. And it is that he is our great high priest. You can't understand that unless you've had the, the regenerative work of Christ operate, the Holy Spirit operate in your life and give you new life. You, you can sing those words, but let me tell you something. You'll sing them and say, wow, that's just a long song. I could have sung that the rest of the afternoon because it just expresses the great gift of God, the great grace of God, the great work of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. It's, it just fits so well with what we want to talk about today. And, and I, the response there, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. I hope you can say that. I hope you recognize all you have is Christ. You don't have your good works that commend you to God. You don't have morality. You don't have ethics that God will say, oh, well, you're good enough. All you have is Christ. That's your only hope. And I hope you can say, Jesus is my life. And I hope you can put that word in front of it, hallelujah, because that's a word of praise and of, of, of just explosive praise to God. I had fun down in Peru last week when we were uh, in one of the worship times and, and some of the ladies there in, the, in that little church that we've discovered that we've been ministering to and ministering with, they led us in some singing. And I didn't have a clue what they were saying until they got the one word. Hallelujah. And they said it just like we say it. They pronounced it just like we pronounce it. And I stood up at that service and I said, well, I don't know what else y'all said, but I know y'all said hallelujah. And I agree with you. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a salvation. And what a great high priest we have in Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the fifth chapter of Hebrews, which is where we are, but we're going to start back three verses earlier at verse 14 of chapter 4. We've already covered that to some degree, to some extent, but I want to cover it again. And guys, go ahead and get the thing ready to put up there in just a moment because I want to explain something in, in light of this. The writer of this book, and remember, this really takes the form of a sermon. This whole book, all these chapters that we've divided up and we treat like a book or a letter, it really has all the elements of a sermon. Now, whether it was a written sermon to start with or whether it was a proclaimed sermon, I don't know, a preached sermon, but it has all the elements of a sermon. And when he gets to this point of talking about we have a great high priest, it has all the sermonic qualities you could ever want. Listen to what he says. Verse 14, chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll stop there. One of the things you have to understand, at least a little bit, if you're going to understand what the writer to Hebrews is talking about, you have to understand something of the Old Testament worship in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Go ahead and put the next up there. Uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness. You, this is a, a painting or a rendering. I hope you can see that. Can you dim these lights right here so it'll help a little bit? But on, on that particular drawing, you see the outer court here. Here's the gate, and, and here is the, the tent of meeting, which is also known as has two parts of it inside there. You'll see in a minute. has the holy place and then the holy of holies. And, and each, each year, wherever the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness, every time they would stop and camp, they would set up the tabernacle in exactly the way God had designated for it to be set up, and they would use that as their place of worship. There was the altar, there was the lever for washing, and then inside where only the priests could go, and ultimately into the Holy of Holies where only the high priests could go. Now give me the next slide on that. And you have a little bit of a diagram here. This is maybe not exactly to, to scale, but it's close. You notice that there is an, the, the gate, there's only one way in. Uh, and this teaches us so much about what Christ is all about, by the way. This is a foreshadowing of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. There's only one way to the Father. Well, there's only one way into the tabernacle and into this place of, of worship, into this place of sacrifice, this place of offering. And it was on always, the door always faced to the east. And the the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, and all was on the western end, and then you got the south and the north. Anybody have any idea why it always, the door was always on the east, facing the east? It was because when the people went into the, to the outer court, when the people went in there to offer their offerings and had the priest offer their place, they were always facing west that way. Every pagan religion, in their day and also in our day, if you look at it closely, every pagan religion bows down and worships in what direction? To the east. 
God had his people looking diametrically opposite of what the pagan religions did. When they came into the presence of God, they were always facing west because he was unique in who he was. He was the only true God. He was the only one who was worthy of their worship. And so he reversed everything that all the other pagan religions did. And so then you have this, this, this tabernacle. It became the center of worship. The most important thing, even the, even the posts around were counted and numbered and put at exact intervals by, by designation by God. And, and then in the, the holy place, here where the golden candlestick and the table of showbread and the altar of incense was, priests could go in there and they could minister in, the, in, the, in preparation for going to the, the high priest going in the presence of, of God. But only the high priest, only the high priest, and then only once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the designation was of the presence of God. And we know that at certain times on the Day of Atonement, the Shekinah glory would come down, the revealed presence of God, and they would see it come down in a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, and it would reside upon the Ark of the Covenant. And there the high priest would offer that sacrifice for the sins of the people that there might be forgiveness on the Day of Atonement. And that would take place. And then one year later, he would go in and he would do it all over again. But only the high priest could pass beyond that veil. There was a veil there, a curtain there. In the temple, that's the veil that was torn, that was rent on the day that Christ died. On the day that he declared, it is finished, that veil was torn and the openness was there to the Holy of Holies that, to see that now God had come in the flesh, had redeemed his people, and no longer was there a need for shielding, no longer was there a need for protection or guarding. Jesus Christ had, had broken down every barrier in our relationship with God if you come through him. It's, it's a beautiful picture of what took place on that day on Calvary. But here was the veil. And, and every year, once a year, the high priest would pass through the veil into the presence of God. Now that's significant when you look at verse 14. Because it says in verse 14, Therefore, since we have a, high, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You can bring the lights back up now. I'm through with that. You can leave it up there, but I'm through with it for right now. He passed through the heavens. Not only does, he, does the high priest go through the veil into the presence of God, now our great high priest, the high priest who is the only high priest now that even matters, the high priest to whom the other high priests like Aaron and his descendants were, were foreshadows, were pictures, were pointing to. This high priest has not just passed through a veil into a tent. This high priest has passed through the heavens into the very presence of God. In his ascension and his return to glory, he has passed through the heavens, symbolizing that he has gone back to be seated at the right hand of the Father that he might intercede on behalf of you and me who are his people, his followers, his children, his family. It's, it's significant there that this writer calls him a great high priest. As a matter of fact, in verse 14, what you have here is a declaration of a victorious priesthood. A victorious priesthood. A priesthood that does not have to be uh, offer sacrifices over and over again like the high priest did in the tabernacle and later in the temple. He said, we have a great high priest. Christ is described as a great priest. 
Then Christ is also portrayed, our high priest is portrayed as a human priest. He uses the name Jesus there. The name Jesus is the earthly name, the, the given name, if you will, of Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. Christ is his declaration as Messiah. But here we have the human name being used. He is Jesus, but he is the Son of God. So he is a great high priest. He is a human high priest, but he is also a unique high priest without any doubt because he's not just human, but he's also the Son of God. He is man God. He is human, and he is divine. And that priesthood is a victorious priesthood that has declared the glory of God and the power of God and the victory of God over all sin all who believe. It's significant you understand that in light of the tabernacle, in light of the temple, that Jesus has now passed through and attained absolute, total, and complete victory. But then the writer also says that it is a compassionate priesthood. He starts out by saying in verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. You see, as he talks in verses uh, 1 through uh, 3, really, of, of chapter 5, he's going to talk about the qualifications of the earthly high priest. And he had to be able to do several things. He, he had to be called by God. He had to ha be sympathetic with the people and have some kind of sympathy toward the people. And he had to be aware of his own needs, his own sin. Because the earthly high priest, Aaron and his descendants, went in and offered sacrifices for the people's sins, but they also offered sacrifices for somebody else's sins, their own. Because they recognized that they were not perfect, they were not without sin, they were appointed by God, called by God, established by God as the high priest of the people, but their sins needed to be atoned for just like the people's sins did. And so he could understand, he could have sympathy, he, he could realize that there's a compassion that needs to be shown toward the people. Well, the writer says in verse 15 that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Significant there. He, he's not just a God who cannot identify with us. He is God who became flesh and dwelt among us. He is God who became incarnate, who lived as a man, as a real man, not as a phantom, not as a false man, not as some kind of pseudo man. He lived as a real man on this earth. And the scripture indicates he was tempted in every way as we are. Now that may not mean that he had every single specific temptation, but in, in the general categories of sin, which by the way, every one of our temptations fall under, he was tempted. Out in the wilderness, when he was taken out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to face Satan, and Satan tempted him there, tempted him three ways. He said, you know, one, you're hungry, you've been fasting 40 days, uh, turn those rocks into bread and eat them. You're God, you're, you have the power to do it, just turn those rocks into bread and feast upon them. And he said, well, this, the word of God says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth the mouth of God. And so Satan was defeated. He didn't succumb to that temptation. Then Satan said, well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll take you down to the temple and I'll, I'll put you up on the pinnacle of the temple and you jump off. 
And when you jump off, God has said in his word. Now Satan starts quoting scripture. God has said in his word that he will not even allow your heel to be dashed. He will send angels down and they'll swoop under you and they'll take care of you and they'll set you lightly upon the ground. And Jesus said, oh yes, but the word of God also says you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Satan was defeated again. No sin. Finally took him out and looked over the mountain and said, everything out there is yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. I'll give you every land, every place. You'll rule like a king forever if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, but the scripture says you have no other gods before me. You shall worship no one but the true and the living God. And he was defeated. Those three temptations, John tells us later in his little epistle, were the temptations of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh, I'm hungry, I, I need to eat, and, and I, I'm tempted to turn those breads in, uh, those stones into bread. There's the lust of the flesh, I want to eat. There's the lust of the eyes. Looking out over, over all the land, I can have all of this. And then there's the boastful pride of life. I can show off a little bit. I can show people how really special I am by just jumping off the temple and letting the angels of God pick me up and set me down. But he didn't do it. But he was tempted in every way that we are. Nothing you fall in, no temptation you fall into. If it's a temptation to steal, it's probably the lust of the flesh. If it's a temptation to boast in your own abilities, it's the pride of life. If there's, a, if there's something out there that you just want and you think you can't be happy without it and you can't go on living unless you get it, I don't care if it's another person, another man's wife, another woman's husband, or a car that you've got to have, or a house, or, or possessions beyond what, I don't know what it is. That's just, the, that, that is the lust of the eyes desiring that. And until you come to the point, as we sang just a few moments ago, of realizing, you know, Christ is, all I have is Christ. And, and Jesus is my life. All of those three major temptations will continue to grab at you and control you and drag you down. But Jesus can sympathize with us because he's been tempted there, yet without sin. So he says, because of that, let us draw near. Let us, let us draw near with confidence, in verse 16, to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a statement. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. You know, Maybe this is a Haynesism here. I don't know that, and maybe you'll disagree with me, and that's all right if you do, but, you know, I really, I really think the throne of grace is Jesus. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. Let us draw near to Jesus. Let us draw near to him, close to him, abide in him, be with him, and there you'll receive mercy, and there you'll find grace, and it will help you in the time of need. It'll help you when you're tempted in the boastful pride of life. It'll help you when you're tempted in the lust of the eyes, and it'll help you when you're tempted in the lust of the flesh. And the only way you'll find help is by drawing near to God's throne of grace that has as its fountainhead the Lord Jesus Christ. Draw near. 
draw close. Because that's the only, only antidote to temptation. It's the only help against temptation. It's the only help against sinning. is to draw near to Christ. Well, it goes on, the writer does, and talks about not only a victorious priesthood and a compassionate priesthood, but he talks about a submissive priesthood in verses 4 through 8. He said, and no one takes the honor to himself, that is, of high priest, whether it was Aaron or whether it was Jesus, you know, but he receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he, that is God, who said to him, you are my son, today have I begotten you. That's Psalm 2, verse 7. Just as he says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety, he was heard because of his, his faith. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. It was a submissive priesthood. Jesus was appointed by God, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, just as Aaron was appointed by God. There was a call there. There was a divine appointment. Jesus didn't take it upon himself. He didn't honor himself. He didn't try to glorify himself. He, he submitted himself to the Father's will. He submitted himself to what the Father called him to do. And he was dependent upon God. You see that dependence in verse 7, in the days of his flesh. He prayed, he offered supplications, he, he cried out loud with tears to the one, to God, who was able to save him from death. And he was heard. Now he went through death. God could have saved him from death. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane experience? When Jesus agonized and prayed, sweat drops as blood, the scripture says. So intent, so intense, that he said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, then Father, let it happen. I don't want to do this. But not my will, but your will be done. What I want is not important. What you desire, O oh God, what your will is, is what matters. There was a dependence and a trust of the Son with the Father. Now, I realize you say, well, wait a minute. If Jesus is God and he's praying to the Father, is he praying to himself? And does, does the Father hear because Jesus is down here? How does he hear up there if God is one? The whole concept of the Trinity gets played in here and drives people absolutely crazy. But it ought not. Because as I've said thousands of times before, we can't understand with our feeble minds the concept of the Trinity. That is one God, three persons, one in essence, one in being, but three persons. It's, it's just hard to get a grasp on that in our mind. But we know by Scripture's details, by God's revelation, that it's true. And these were real prayers he was offering to a real father who was listening 
and who always answered him and always heard him because of his reverence, because of his piety. He sought to just glorify God in all that he did. And then he was obedient. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now that doesn't mean until he suffered he was disobedient. Just like in the next thing we're going to talk about his being made perfect. You know, it's not we're not talking about something that he wasn't and then he became it, but it was manifest. His obedience was manifest by going to the cross. His obedience was manifested by him doing what God had sent him in the world to do in the first place. From the very beginning. From that stable in Bethlehem. He came to go to the cross. So it's a victorious priesthood. It's a, it's a compassionate priesthood. It's a submissive priesthood. And finally, it is an effective priesthood. Verses 9 and 10, it says, Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek's mentioned twice here in verse 6, quoting Psalm 110, and now in verse 10, where he said, Jesus, God has designated Jesus a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Aaron. That's significant. We'll talk about significance more a little later on because he's going to deal a lot more with Melchizedek in a little later point. But let me just say this. It means that Jesus was not in the earthly line of Aaron. That is, if Jesus were depending on family inheritance to be the high priest, he would not have made it. He was of the order of Melchizedek. Well, who in the world is Melchizedek? Well, if you go back into Genesis and you find the call of Abraham, and as Abraham is wandering, he comes across this Melchizedek who is the king priest of Salem, perhaps the later Jerusalem. But, but he's, he just appears. He, he comes out of nowhere. There's no lineage. There's no understanding who he is. He comes from nowhere. He doesn't have the right credentials, humanly speaking, to be a priest of the Most High God. But he is a priest of the Most High God. And so in the same way that Melchizedek comes upon Aaron, uh, Abraham and Abraham offers, uh, gives tithes to him and worships God along with Melchizedek, in that same way Jesus has appeared after the order of Melchizedek. There's no human lineage to go with it. There's no way to draw it out and say, well, he has a right, humanly speaking, to be a priest. He is a priest for one reason, and that is because God has established him as a priest. And that's really all that matters. But it's a, it is an effective priesthood. It says in verses 9 and 10, he, he's been made perfect. Now again, perfect there doesn't mean he was imperfect, and now uh, because he obeyed God, he's become perfect. Somehow Jesus had some blemishes, had some sin, had some problems, but now because he went to the cross, he's perfect. No, it, it just means now he has proven himself to be fully qualified as our Savior. With all of his obedience, his continuous obedience to the Father, he is now fully qualified. Doesn't mean he was imperfect before this. He's always been perfect, but now he's fully qualified to be our Savior, to be our effective high priest, to go into the, to the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, and offer himself as a sacrifice in our place to never have to be repeated again. That's the perfection of his high priestliness. 
this letter, uh, this sermon that this writer of the Hebrews continues to talk about is he, he talks about Jesus being the source of eternal salvation. For you and me. We have eternal salvation not because of who we are, not because of what we have done, not because what we can accomplish and wave our hand at God and say, God, will you accept me on the basis of that? We have eternal salvation on the base of Je basis of Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the great and perfect high priest who became the source of of eternal salvation. That's what that song we sang earlier was about. That, you know, I once was lost in dark, darkest night, etc., etc. I was running hell bound toward hell. I was indifferent to the cost of Christ. I was indifferent to what he had paid. But Christ, in his grace, took that wrath that was reserved for me and he bore it in my place on the cross. Now my, de my desire is that last verse said, you know, I want to be yours alone. I want to live so others can see that it's not me following your commands. I couldn't do it my own self. It's you, O oh Lord. It's, it's you who ransomed my life. It's, it's you who can use me in any way you choose and, and let my song forever be that I boast in you. For the believer, there ought to always be that life that is pointing to Christ. For the believer, there ought to always be that life that says, that's what I'm proud of. That's what I boast in. That's who I'm proud of. That's who I boast in. It's not me. But it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So this great high priest called Jesus was appointed by God. He identified with men. He was sensitive to our human need. He was victorious over sin. He was obedient to the divine purpose. And he was willing to die to effect our deliverance. Even death on the cross. Well, one thing you can draw from this, and I think we'll leave with this this morning, is that obedience was not only necessary for him, but it's expected of us also. Obedience was not only you know, necessary for Christ to follow it through, but we are called to a life of obedience. In verse 9 it says, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Now that obedience is initially that faith, that believing, that trust. Follow me. The only possible route to holiness of life is by way of the cross. By way of his cross and by way of our own cross. It always amazed me that when Jesus' disciples expressed their horror at the cross that he was going to bear, you know, when he said, listen, the Son of Man must go and suffer at the hands of the high priest and, and be crucified. They said, no. And Peter said, no, Lord, you don't understand. I'll die before they'll crucify you. I'll go with you to the death. They'll have to come through me. Every time the disciples showed horror at his cross, Jesus focused on theirs and told them about their cross. 
Like in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, where Jesus said, Listen, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, those are hard words. Those are difficult words. Those are words of obedience, of anticipated and expected obedience. Not just by Christ to go to the cross and die in our place and receive our wrath upon his own body and take our sins upon himself, but that we would deny ourselves, that we would take up our cross and that we would follow him. What an amazing statement. That it's not just that cross that is the all in all. I mean, it, it, it enables everything. But then there's the call to you and me to say, listen, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. If I lost everything tomorrow, if I lost my health, if I lost my wealth, if I lost my home, if I lost my family, if I lost everything this world makes so attractive to me, then so be it. Because that's not my life anyway. If I'm a believer, Jesus Christ is all I have. Jesus is my life. Let's pray. Father, what a great truth. That you appointed Christ as our high priest, that he might enter into your presence and offer himself as our sacrifice that, that we might have our sin forgiven, that we might be cleansed. But Lord, more than that, that we might receive your righteousness and that we might become holy through the cross. Father, I pray this morning that we would come to a greater realization of what it means to follow you, to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow you. It's easy to miss that in our culture, even our church culture, especially our church culture. When everybody just wants, it just seems like everybody in our world just wants to be made to feel good and happy and just don't rock the boat. Father, Jesus came in the world to rock the boat. He, he rocked the boat of religiosity and he's still rocking the boat of churchianity. He's still saying it's not about 
just being a member of a church. It's not about just attending once or twice a week and saying, oh, well. But it's about knowing you and walking in, in obedience to your will. It's about coming to a point where you're everything. Where all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Father, show us that by your grace. Draw us closer to you. You've commanded us to draw close with confidence to your throne of grace. Lord, let that grace compel us to go closer and walk with you in a deeper obedience. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.